But right now we're going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we believe at City Light that the Bible is God's word. And as it's read and taught faithfully and accurately, it's God speaking to us. And we, our general pattern for the year is that we move through books of the Bible. And whatever comes up is what we preach. And so that is no different for our series now in Deuteronomy, a book in the Old Testament. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 8, and I'm going to be reading from sentences 10 to 14. If you have a Bible with you, feel free to grab that out. But I'm going to read it, and it's going to come up on the screen for us as well. Deuteronomy chapter 8, sentences 10 to 14. It says, And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the word of God. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello, yeah man. Yeah, last time I gave a talk was a few months ago. I went to Tamworth and, and I said good morning and everyone in the building said good morning. And I was shocked. I was like, I didn't know what to do. So, so good morning. Hey. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Paul. Um, I'm married to Leah. She's not here today. Our youngest has the snots. So the, our other three kids are loving life and city kids right now. Uh, Leah and I are in our second year studying at Sydney Missionary and Bible College. Uh, and like Jez said, this year I've sort of been doing something called being a student minister. Um, still figuring that out, <laughs> how that works. Um, but yeah, it's a privilege to be able to open the word with you guys today. Um, and my hope and my prayer is that whether you're visiting or, or a regular, um, that God will be having something to say to you today. But I'm going to pray that God will help us as we look at the word. So let's pray. Father, thank you that your word and the way that you've shown us who you are is, is in the way that you've been faithful and good to your people. And Lord, as I speak, please, would you help me to be clear um, and that we would, we would have ears to hear how good you really are. Please open our hearts to receive what you have to say to us. May we be encouraged to spur one another on to love others as you've loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, and to set the scene today, I thought I'd share a story that I'm not necessarily proud of, and I'd probably say, don't let it go outside of these four walls. But when I told my kids about it, uh, the boat sailed. Like, it's, it's, so feel free. Um, yeah, so when I was about eight years old, um, our house had a money jar, and um, it would sit next to the door uh, on a table, and often I'd be sitting on the couch, and I'd sort of be in eyesight to the money jar and as my mum and dad would come home from the shops they'd put the keys on the table and dig some coins out of their pocket they put it in the money jar and I was very interested in this this was very compelling I, like any self-respecting child I was very interested in money you know pocket money and tuck lunch money and if I find a coin on the side of the road they um, yeah and on the geekier side does anyone collect coins no so I was it I'm the only one in the room. Um, I, I, as an eight-year-old, I had a coin album, and I would collect Australian coins, because you know they've got pictures on the back, right? And they're all different. Um, so there I was, sitting on the couch, very interested in money, seeing people throwing money into this money jar, 
and it seemed like they didn't want it anymore. So I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to help out with this. <laughs> so I began to tidy up the jar, just rounding it down to the nearest dollar. Um, you know, buy 10 cents here, 20 cents there. And who apart from me even cares, right? So fast forward uh, to the point, maybe a, a bunch of weeks, maybe months, and my little daggy zip-up man purse is just bulging and it looks like a lumpy balloon. And I, I would sit on my bed maybe like once a week and I'd pour it all out onto my bed and just marvel at my wealth. I'd be like running it through my fingers and, and it got to my head. I got my coin albums and I emptied my coin albums, all these collectible coins, and I added them to the pile so it was even bigger. And it got to my, it got to my head and I saw mum walk past the door and I was like, mum, look how much money I've got. And I, I don't know what I was expecting her to say, like, well done, Paul. Or like, um, whoa, how many Mars bars could you buy? Um, it really threw me for a six when she was like, where did you get that? <laughs> and well, the gig was up. The, like, the whole operation was blown wide open with one question. Um, and she came and sat down with me and, and we had a good chat. But I don't remember what we said because I was just looking at her tipping all the money out of my man purse in, back into the money jar so that I had even less than I started with. I told that to my kids and they literally ran out of the house and looked for the first person on the side of the street to tell about their father who was a thief. <laughs> Thanks, kids. The weird thing about all that is by virtue of being a child, I literally, like, I had a loving household and very thankful for it. And I had everything I needed. And why, why did I need to rob my parents? I think the problem lies with the idea of contentment. Um, I had everything I needed, but I still wanted more. And the sad thing is, I don't think I've grown out of that. Um, and if I was to take a survey of the room, I think maybe we would all still be wrestling with this idea of contentment. Who wouldn't be happier with a bit more contentment in life? Um, so as we dive into chapter 8 today, uh, we'll look at the whole chapter. Um, and Moses has a solution for the contentment problem. And even though he's speaking to Israelites way back in the day, the message is going to be the same for us today. So how do we find contentment? Moses' answer is, like Jez said before, by not forgetting that God is the one who provides. And there are two kind of main ideas that he uses to explain this. And the first is, in the first half of the, half of the chapter, God sent his people into the wilderness so that they won't forget that God provides. And in the second point is, he warns that in times of prosperity, it's really hard to remember that God provides. And for those who might have uh, missed the last few weeks, or if you're visiting, uh, we are going through the book of Deuteronomy. It's at the, f the front end of the, the Bible. And in the Jewish Bible, it's called Ele Hadabarim, which means these are the words. It's, that's the first few words that start the book. And that kind of points to the nature of the book, which means it's meant to be read out, and it's meant to be heard, and it's meant to be obeyed. And Deuteronomos came a bit later when Alexander the Great, Greek, Alexander the Greek, the great, smashed the known world and forced everyone to speak Greek. And so they tra translated it into Greek. And, um, and there, there's a, a thought that the, the name Deuteronomy comes from chapter 17, where it talks about how kings are meant to write out a copy of the law when they come into power, and it's meant to be a reminder to them of who they are in God's story. So that's the title of the book. Uh, in the first seven chapters of the book that we've been going through, Moses is giving a recap of um, how God led the Israelites out of Egypt to the front doorstep of the promised land. It's been promised, promised to their forefather Abraham so that they can enjoy God's blessings with the result that the nations all around will also be blessed. But the Israelites turn up there and they hear about giants and fortresses 
and they freak out and they tell Moses, we'd rather go back into slavery in Egypt than to stay here and trust in God. So as a result, God promises that except for the, the two guys that said, let's do it, everyone else is not going to see the promised land. And they're sent out into the surrounding wilderness for 40 years until that generation had completely passed away. But during that 40 years, God shows them every day that he is good and worthy of trust as he provides for them in that wilderness. And at the, r- the right time, he brings them right back to the front porch of the promised land. And here, Moses, by this time, is well over 100 years old, and he gives his last speech to the next generation and reminds them who they are and who God is. Lots of encouragements and warnings, and uh, it's trying to help them to see that God is offering them a life of peace and abundance if only they would obey him. If you ever wondered why we do this, where someone stands up the front and talks to a group of people listening, Moses is pretty much the ancient Near Eastern version of an influencer. Um, He's a great example of someone doing this. He, He gets up and he tells them about who God is, what he's done, and what people should do in response. So that's why we're here today. So as we look at the first half of the chapter, Moses is telling the people that God sent them into the wilderness so they won't forget that God provides. And he does it in a few ways. He does it by providing food. Look at verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The first time that the uh, Israelites came up against this problem is, is about 15 days out of leaving Egypt. So 15 days from being saved from slavery, walking into the desert, half a month, and they, they start to grumble. Their memories of Egypt are already starting to get rose-tinted as they think about the meat and spices they used to have. And they were conveniently forgetting about the fact that Pharaoh had enslaved them and thrown their children into the river. Um, So hunger was this this tool, a very effective tool for God to expose a hard attitude. And that was was just 15 days in, but in the 40 years of wilderness, this, this happened again. They grumbled and complained every time they got to the point where they felt like they didn't have enough food. And God pointed out that he saved them from slavery and he won't let them die in the, de- in the desert either. And so through his generosity and grace, he keeps providing their every need. But not only that, he provided in a, in a way that the people would know that the, his provision came from God's hands alone and not by coincidence. So God made manna appear with the dew in the morning and it's described to, as looking like coriander seeds. I, I've never looked at coriander seeds. I don't know what that looks like. Um, but it's white, and, um, and it tasted like wafers made with honey, apparently. And the people had never seen it before, and neither did their parents. And um, when you see something for the first time, you, there's no name for it. You, you give it a name. So they called it manna, which means, what is it? <laughs> so it's, it's memorable. They're like, hey, pastor, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> and God provided it every single day, and they would, they'd, they'd mash it up like flour and make bread, and they'd have bread every day. And just Moses is reminding the people that while food enabled them to live and even thrive in the desert, it was a test and a teaching tool. In verse 3, the purpose of that testing and humbling and going without food and then getting fed was so that they would know deep down that God is the one who provides. And God helped them to not forget by giving them food and water every day, but not only that, 
he provided clothing as well. Look at verse 4. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. This is a pretty puzzling statement because clothes and swollen ankles don't seem to be high up on the list when you need a miraculous intervention. Maybe if you're like Graham, getting ready in the morning, you, there's a few prayers going up, you're looking for a clean pair of pants. But if, even if you kind of have a blowout with your thongs, it might ruin your day. But it's not the sort of thing where you start praying that your thongs get miraculously healed. Um, but, you know, academics and people smarter than me say they're not really sure what this looks like because Moses doesn't spend the time explaining what that looks like, what, how, does, how did God stop their ankles from swelling and, and the clothes from running out. It's just how it was. That's what it says. But the consensus is that the question of whether he made super sandals or eternal togas kind of distracts from the, the main point being that God provided everything they needed in a really hostile environment. He was showing his goodness among his people, that even though they had no access to looms and uh, leather factories, um, they had everything they needed. And it was being, uh, yeah, just because God was with them. So through that, God is reminding the people that the testing in the desert was not torture, but rather, as we see in verses 5 and 6, that God led them through this time just like a father trains and dis disciplines his son. And every morning when they went out and looked for the manna on the ground and God made water pump out of a rock, they were being trained as a children by a good father. And this is, might be familiar territory for the, the kind of parents and carers in the rooms. When, you, when you're going to cross the road with a, a little child, you need to hold their hand when they're little because they're the, the kind of people that look up and down before they cross the road. You know, there's just they step straight out into traffic. You've got to hold their hand until they're old enough that they learn that they have to look left and right. Um, and you're still going to be doing that till they're 30, until they prove that they know road safety. Um, so look at verses 7 to 10. This is the reason why God was holding their hand all this time. They're about to enter a, land, enter a land in which they would have free refills of bread, water on tap, in a land in which they would lack nothing. He held their hand through the wilderness so that when they entered the promised land, they would not forget that it was God who provided it. And in verse 10, we see what should, what should happen when you receive God's blessing, and that's to respond in blessing in return. And this brings us to our second point. Moses is warning the people that in times of prosperity, when you get to this land, it's really hard to remember that God provides. And in this half of the chapter, we've got three warnings. He warns that forgetting is disobedience. Prosperity promotes idolatry. And he warns them that forgetting leads to exile. And as we read at the start, you can see the first warning is in verse 11. And it's the, it's the central part of the whole chapter. Everything leads to this point. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Forgetting is synonymous with disobedience. God's covenant with his people began with, I am Yahweh your God. And his name is used throughout all of his commandments. So how exactly could the Israelites disobey God's commands and still remember God? And on the flip side, if they were to forget God and still keep the commandments, it doesn't really make sense. It's, it's kind of impossible to, to separate the two. All of the laws about loving God and loving other people are tied in with who God is and what he's done for them. To disobey God's laws is the same as forgetting who God is. And the second warning, the prosperity promotes idolatry, 
comes through the whole section of verses 12 to 18, um, where Moses lays out the pattern for the future. And he's talk- through, through all of these, uh, the, the promised land language, it's, it's basically the Garden of Eden that he's describing. When you've settled in the promised land, like this Garden of Eden, where you lack nothing, in verse 14 he says, that's, that's when you forget the Lord. The same Lord that rescued them from Egypt and provided everything they needed in the wilderness and the humbling and the testing, in verse 16, it was so that he would do them good in the end. How does that lead to idolatry? In verse 10, the right response was to, in receiving God's blessing, was to bless God in return. So what does it mean if in verse 17, in our pride we give to ourselves the praise that rightfully belongs to God? Or anything that takes God's place in receiving our praise and thankfulness is an idol, even if, it, if it's the worshipping of ourselves. And the last warning, in the final two verses, are a warning that forgetting leads to exile. In a throwback to that story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Moses is warning them in the, the, the same simple command that God gave to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. And Adam and Eve were already in the Garden. These, these guys are about to go into the Garden. The warning was, if you obey me, you will live a life of blessing. But if you disobey my command, you will surely die. And just like Adam and Eve, it wasn't going to be an instantaneous death, physical death. But it was an instantaneous spiritual death when their relationship with, with God was broken. And this must have been the most sobering warning of all. For the, this younger generation, generation of Israel, who have just come up to the doorstep of the promised land, are being warned that in the same way that God's going to sweep out the, the Canaanites before them, God's going to use the same broom on them if they forget God. And one way to illustrate all of, all of these things that we've been talking about is to see how wilderness and prosperity affect sheep. Uh, if you've ever had the opportunity to visit a sheep station in Australia, you might have noticed that sheep are a little bit dopey and quite tasty. And so... They're very, very low on the food chain. Like, because they're dumb and tasty, everything, everything eats them. Um, so they're a prey animal. It, not like a praying hands animal, but like a prey animal. And so they're innately scared of everyone and everything. So if you v- to visit a farm during a dry season, and you see the, the farmer kind of driving out to the paddock to drop food and fill up the water troughs, you would very soon see all these hungry, sad-looking sheep come running over and crowd around the tractor. And this is because the sheep overcome their fear and trust the farmer because he's providing what they really need. And over time, they learn to listen for his, for the, well, his voice or listen for his tractor. And that's a bit like how the Israelites were being kind of reminded in the wilderness that God is the one who provides. But if you see sheep in green fields, which is probably more likely at the moment with all this rain, um, well, there's all-you-can-eat grass. They've got the buffet open all day. And their wool looks good enough for a nappy sand commercial. But, and they don't stick around if you try and walk up to them. Um, their nature is to take off. They will run away from you, and they don't want anything to do with you. Um, and they've got everything they need. What, what do they want from you except that you might eat them? Um, and that's what Moses is worried about. Like He's been a shepherd this whole time. He's been like a shepherd watching the Israelites, and they're, they're like his sheep. And he knows their heart and their inclinations. And he knows that in, an, in a time of prosperity, it's really hard for them to remember that God provides. And so the question for us is, so what? 
even though we're talking about an ancient people group and, and about some sheep as well, um, I think there's maybe a lot more com in common with them. We have a lot more in common with them than we think. So which field do you see yourself in? Are you a sheep who has green fields and, and to frolic in and to spend your days looking for greener grass? Or do you feel more like a sheep who's maybe in a drought situation where you feel like the sun is unrelenting and you don't know how much longer you're going to survive? With either of these scenarios, is true contentment possible? If you're in the middle of a time of wilderness in your life, you might be tempted to think that the path to contentment lies in whatever the opposite of the wilderness is. If it's relational brokenness, you might look for contentment in a new relationship. If your drought is financial, you might look for contentment in financial security. If your drought is depression, you might hope the solution lies in the form of a few things, relationships or pleasure or drugs, liquid or solid. But Moses says, no, God has a solution that goes above and beyond what you eat or whatever you think fills the void. In verse 3, God provided the wilderness and the manna to teach you that mankind does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's saying, don't look for contentment. Don't search for contentment in bread, money, relationships, the job, the house, the music, the kids, or even the pastor. Turn your eyes to the God who provides what you really need and learn to listen for his voice. If you feel like you might be in green fields and that you're in the promised land already, you're probably not alone because in a culture like ours, uh, which by every account is quite prosperous, um, there's a bit of a tendency to, to believe that we, we are in the promised land. We can buy what we want, and not just what we want, what we need, and we don't have to wait very long because with delivery times it's almost instantaneous. And all of that is, well, that's just a little, little example of how there's a tendency to a dangerous self-reliance. And Moses is saying, be careful, watch out. This is really, this is dangerous ground. As he says in verse 18, don't forget that it's God who gives you the ability to get wealth. And if you're patting yourself on the back, be careful not to put yourself on the throne of your heart because God doesn't share his worship with others and he takes idolatry very seriously. Uh, you and I are in a unique situation where we can look back at the Israelites and, and when we read the first few chapters of Judges, which is only a, a book or two after, we know that the Israelites failed. They ultimately really screwed up. But we can also look back to a more recent history where God provided a solution to Israel's forgetfulness and disobedience. And he also made good on his promises to bless all the nations. And he provided what the world really needed. And the ultimate provision from God was God. Jesus, our Lord and our God, is our ultimate provision. While bread might sustain us and keep us alive, Jesus' death and resurrection on the third day was better than bread because through the cross, Jesus made a way for us to find true life and true contentment. And I'm not just kind of pulling that out of the story. Jesus says it about himself in John 6.35. It's not on the screen, but you can look it up. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that's true contentment. Jesus satisfies our every need so that we don't have to look anywhere else for sustenance, physical or spiritual. So what does it look like for us to find our contentment in Jesus? Well, as you go through this week, if you feel like you're in a wilderness situation, 
don't forget that God provides. When you feel like God has switched the lights off in your life, don't forget what he told you in the light. As a church family, my prayer is that we might be lights to one another as well in times of darkness. Sometimes just having someone walk beside you in those times feels like Jesus has given you what you need for that moment. It feels like Jesus is there. If you're in Greenfields this week, don't forget that it was God who provided it for you. If you have good health, thank the, God, thank the Lord. And don't forget that everything you have still belongs to God. You just have it on loan. If you're content in Jesus and if you have what you need, your contentment and joy can only grow when you share the rest with others. This week you could plan to practice hospitality, to welcome a stranger, or serve the needs of those around you out of the abundance of, of your contentment. When you're basking in the sunlight, bless the Lord for carrying you through the darkness. So my prayer is that we'd be able to help each other to do that this week. And um, I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the one who provides for us in the wilderness. And you are the one who also provides the blessings in good times. It's hard to understand how times of hardship could possibly turn out for good, but you have provided your son, Jesus, so that even if we do face death, we have a sure hope that true life awaits us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of life, and when we come to you, we can be truly satisfied. Lord, help us not to forget you when, we, when you bless us with good health or finances or security. Please guide our hearts this week to be on guard against pride and self-congratulations. But instead, please enable us to bless others with the blessings you have given us. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.